and welcome to The Bunker USA with me, Andrew Harrison. Our weekend special where we dig into the wonders and mysteries of American politics and wonder where that wild spiral might be taking us in future. This week, the embarrassing spectacle of Representative Kevin McCarthy needing 15 rounds of votes to be elected House Speaker by his own party put the state of the Republicans into sharp relief. Like the whole party, the House, which was supposed to be the Republicans' bridgehead towards fighting Joe Biden, is now held hostage to a 20-member Freedom Caucus of extreme-right members, election deniers, conspiracists and headbangers. But their figurehead, Donald Trump, is increasingly embattled and seen by many as a liability to the party. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is seen by many as a safer bet for 2024. So do we have to steal ourselves from MAGA 2.0, a de-Trumpified extreme right in America? And will such a thing be harder for the Democrats to handle? Do we have to look forward to a future of the Ronald instead of the Donald? With me to talk about it is UCL Associate Professor in Global Politics, host of the Power Corrupts podcast, Washington Post columnist and friend of the podcast, back after too long an absence, Brian Class. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. It's, it's great to have you back on. Um, before we get into the possibility of a zero Trump future for the Republicans, I've got to ask you about the these classified government documents that have been found in Joe Biden's think tank in Washington and in his garage in Delaware. This is such a strange thing to see and, a, and kind of a massive political gift to the Republicans and Trump in particular. What happened here? Yeah, I mean, it was careless. There's no other way to to describe it. This was a mistake. And Anyone who is handling classified documents should be very careful with them. Uh, it's national security at stake. And therefore, you know, I think this is something that's worth paying attention to. However, it's not the same as the Trump story. And the Republican playbook here is going to try to conflate the two. And unfortunately, they're probably going to get away with it because most people don't pay attention to nuance in politics. But what happened with Trump is substantially different for a few reasons. One is that Trump orchestrated the transfer of lots of classified documents to Mar-a-Lago by design, then tried to cover it up, refused to hand them over, and continues to not cooperate with the investigation and therefore has criminal liability potentially. Whereas Biden's uh, team discovered these, disclosed them. So they're not the same thing, but you know, a lot of voters will potentially not see the difference. So it's going to be Hillary Clinton's emails all over again. Instead of but her emails, it's going to be but his Corvette. Indeed. And I think that's one of the areas where you know the press... I still think has not really learned the lessons of 2016 is that there have to be definitive statements that describe how these things are different in press commentary around these issues. And mostly what I've seen has been an attempt by even more pro-Democrat news outlets in the United States to conflate the two um, in an unfortunate degree. Well, it's clearly going to be grist to the Republican mill. So let, let's get into that that main topic. Um the Freedom Caucus in the House, that the Matt Getz, Lauren Boebert, Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene axis, does it actually stand for anything? Does it want to achieve anything? Yeah, this is a good question because one of the things that happened during Kevin McCarthy's you know long and arduous road to the House speakership is that he kept on giving concessions. And by the end, Matt Getz said in an interview, I've run out of things to ask for. And that's because this wasn't about policy. This wasn't about principles. It was about a personal vendetta and also about the idea that Kevin McCarthy simply isn't a true believer in the Trump camp in the same way that Matt Getz and some of his other fellow travelers in the Freedom Caucus are. 
And so I worry that, you know, what we're going to see for the next two years when the Republicans maintain control of the House is complete dysfunction and chaos defining U.S. governance. It's not about compromise. It's not about policy. It's about, you know, victories and it's about stardom. And frankly, people like Matt Goetz are trying to use politics as a vehicle to become famous and rich. And so for them, the thing to do is to stand out by establishing themselves as these sort of political influencers rather than politicians. And that's, I think, what we're going to see um, for the next two years, a series of people grandstanding, trying to get you know clips on Fox News and become darlings of the political right. And that's a very dangerous recipe for governance. I heard them described on the Slate Political Gab Fest as the Kardashian faction in, in the House. As if it's, it, you know, it's exactly about this like drama, chaos, and almost an agenda for sort of destroying government as a concept. Yeah, I think this has been happening in Western democracies more generally. And the reason I think it's been happening is because party control has broken down in the age of social media. So, you know, in the past, you had to sort of wait your turn in politics. You had to, you know, sort of put in your time and maybe two decades in, you'd become, you know, a primetime figure in your party or even, you know, 10 years in. Now it's 10 minutes, right? Because you can break the party mold by simply taking to social media, doing live broadcasts, going on podcasts that have big audiences like Steve Bannon's and simply becoming more extreme and therefore getting an audience. So the problem is that the incentives are starting to reward people who are like Matt Getz, who are standing out for their extremism, both with political power and with money, because of course he's now a kingmaker in the Republican House, as is someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's you know a complete crackpot. Um, but beyond that, it's also attracting different kinds of people in the first place. I mean, this is something that I, I've written about extensively in the past, is that the system you design determines who applies to be powerful within that system. And the more that stardom and fame and influence in social media circles is the sort of thing that people are chasing, the more that people who don't care about solving problems uh, are going to gravitate towards politics. And unfortunately, that's, I think, what we're heading towards in, in America and to a lesser extent in Britain. How tied are these new figures in the Republican firmament? It's almost like kind of phase four of the Marvel Universe or whatever, the new, the new characters. How tied are they to Trump? Is it really about defending his record such as it is? Or is, it, is he more of a symbol in, in, in that it proves not what they want to achieve, but the kind of person that they are? I think Trump is still, you know, got this sort of talismanic grip on the Republican Party. And I think that a lot of the people who are in the Freedom Caucus may think that he's not helpful to the party's strategic aims, but frankly, they're never going to criticize him to a serious degree simply because he has such an overwhelming grip on the party's base. And to criticize Trump and to say that he's a terrible politician or a racist or an authoritarian within Republican circles, that's the kiss of death for your primary challenge and for your future prospects of getting elected. So what I really worry about is that somebody like Matt Goetz is going to try to thread that needle. He's going to praise Trump, but he's also going to sort of try to move the party to Trump 2.0, which is all of the bad bits of Trump, but with more strategic discipline. And one of the weird things about thinking about the Trump era and its sort of legacy is one of the slight upsides of Trump himself was that he was not a disciplined and strategic thinker um, after he got elected. He shot himself in the foot repeatedly. His tweets destroyed his political ambitions all the time. And therefore, he undercut a lot of his ability to actually translate some of his more dangerous ideas into political reality. Some of the people in the Republican House are very disciplined thinkers. Um, the problem is that they've got a very unruly 
party to try to, you know, sort of tame. And the more they give in to the Freedom Caucus, the more they're going to lose people off the middle. So they have a very narrow range of opportunity in order to actually translate, um, you know, their, their dangerous ideas into policy. And I think that's going to be Mc- Kevin McCarthy's great challenge. And I, I suspect he's going to have serious, serious problems trying to wrangle his Republican caucus to get anything actually done. The story of the midterms was that Trump-associated candidates underperformed at best, and some of them kind of flamed out. Um, And the party has been executing this strange, you know, sorry, not sorry, distancing themselves from him, but not distancing themselves from him. What is going on there? Is there any prospect of anybody being able to step out and make a definitive break? Or will will Trump be allowed to sort of fade into the background like, like like some crazy uncle? Yeah, you know, this is where I think the U.S. and the U.K. diverge in a way that I'm much more pessimistic about American politics. And I know that many many listeners of the show will not share my optimism about British politics. But I wrote a piece in The Atlantic a couple months ago um, in which I talked about how Liz Truss's downfall actually shows the health of British democracy. And if you bear with me, I promise it makes sense. So what I mean by that is that if you look at the proportion of people who voted for Tories in the last general election, it was around 44%. And Truss had about 12% approval ratings in the only time that I think she was – she was only in office long enough for one poll uh, really to be held. But but 12% was the approval rating I saw. Now, by contrast, Trump had 40% approval ratings throughout his time in office, and he maintained or improved his grip on the Republican base during his presidency such that about 90% – Uh, to 85% of Republicans approved of him the entire time he was president. All the crazy stuff, all the ups and downs, the roller coaster from sort of 2016 to 2020, uh, you know, he still maintained an absolute rock solid grip on his party's base. And that's because of two things. One is that U.S. polarization and conspiracism is far worse in uh, in democratic circles than it is in, in Britain, such that when the facts change or when performance declines, people don't change their mind. So, you know, even though Trump does, was disastrous on a lot of objective fronts, he still is very favorably viewed by Republicans. And the second thing is that I think understanding Trump's base and his grip on it is much more akin to authoritarian political movements than it is to democratic ones, such that there's a cult of personality around Donald Trump in which people view him as this sort of messianic figure who's come to save the Republicans from the sort of deep state and the grip of the elites and all these sorts of things. It's complete you know, hogwash, but it's still something where it still has this real grip on the party's base. And therefore, you know, once you've accepted Trump for all the terrible things he did in the past, you don't end up hitting your breaking point because it says, I was wrong about all that other stuff, but now this has gone too far. And I think if you accept January 6th, if you accept all the religious bigotry, the authoritarianism, the incompetence of Donald Trump, it's pretty hard to see where the breaking point will lie. And that's why going into 2024, he still is the odds-on favorite to have the Republican nomination, although it's not a slam dunk for him and he, he will ta- face uh, serious opposition. And yet, you know, hard right politics in the US is a media ecosystem as well as a, as a political one. And Fox has been distancing itself, hasn't it? Trump. Yeah, they have they have to an extent, but one of the things is, you know, there's there's a question about whether media, you know, perceptions shape political bases or whether political bases shape media. And one of the things that became very clear in the Trump era was the right-wing ecosystems of media that went after Trump saw their viewership decline. And so I think that Fox News after the midterms really tried to distance themselves from Trump's agenda. 
Uh, and they really tried to create a world in which Trump was blamed for all these things. And they said, you know, we, we need to move on as a party. I think that that's going to cost them market share if they keep down that road. And there will be meetings in Fox News headquarters in which they basically say we have to be treading carefully with this messaging. And so, you know, I think that there is a uh, a great exaggeration of the demise of Trump within the Republican Party, basically. And I think that the media circles around Trump still praise him writ large, even though they have a much greater degree of uh, criticism that they're allowing on the airwaves. I want to ask you about this select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government, which is going to be chaired by Representative Jim Jordan, who is a a bit of a Republican gorgon. It seems to be this grab bag of literally every Republican obsession of the of the past five years. Is it basically enshrining conspiracy thinking in the, in the Republican agenda? You hit the nail on the head. Um, so I, I have an, another piece out in the Atlantic this week where I talk about how conspiracism is a uniquely American disease and how different right-wing politics are in America because conspiracy theories have just taken a complete grip on the Republican Party. And again, this is where, despite all the chaos and dysfunction in Britain, I actually think the system is working a bit better here than it is across the pond in the United States. And that's because if you compare, for example, Andrew Bridgen, who just you know tweeted out this horrific conspiracy theory about COVID vaccines, the response was pretty unified and swift against him. Uh, you can't say crazy stuff that's completely at odds with reality, at least to that extreme degree in British politics, and not face a backlash. Whereas in America, that's actually the pathway to power, right? Mm. So people like Mike Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor, who was actually in charge of the White House's national security apparatus for a time before he lost power in, in early 2017, this is a guy who has said that Yuval Noah Hariri, the guy who wrote Sapiens, is trying to turn us all into cyborgs, right? Literally, this is what he has said. He said that this, this best-selling historian is part of a plot to alter our DNA, and he has a massive following among the right wing, right? You have somebody who took Andrew Bridgen's playbook a couple years ago, basically, and said COVID vaccines are akin to the Holocaust, and that person was reelected with 64% of the vote without a primary challenger in the Ohio Republican House, and also claimed that vaccines cause spoons to stick to you because you become magnetized. So the level of crazy is off the charts in the Republican Party, and it's becoming enshrined in official government business because the agenda that the Republicans have is not about taxes and inflation and political you know, machinations that are about policy. It's about trying to set up a world in which they launch an endless stream of investigations based on deranged lies. And that's what I'm really worried about is as you sort of start to go down the rabbit hole, not just as a political base, but as the mainstream political party, that means that the Republican Party has been captured by both conspiracism and authoritarian politics. And my worry is that the death spiral of democracy is much more likely when you have those two things because compromise becomes impossible when you have conspiracy theories such that you think your opponents are, you know, sipping the blood of children, which is literally a view that apparently 17% of Americans hold about Democrats based on QAnon. Um, but also this idea that, you know, your political opponents are not legitimate because of these lies based on rigged elections. And the one-two punch of those makes the normal functioning of politics completely impossible and makes violence much more likely. So, uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I know I haven't always been the, the most optimistic uh, person on U.S. politics, but I think, I think that that assessment has been warranted in the last couple of years because these trends are really dangerous. And I don't see a sort of reining in of these impulses within the Republican Party, even as they've been handed serious electoral defeats, both in 2020 and 2022. What's actually in this weaponization of the federal government's uh, docket then? Because I know that uh, they've been itching to get at Hunter Biden uh, for years. The weaponization investigation will supposedly contain, uh, you know, looking at the FBI for supposedly being instructed to target uh, Donald Trump. What what else is in this this grab bag of crazy? Well, you're going to hear a lot about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, um, and you're also going to hear a lot about the idea of politicization of law enforcement. I mean, I think on both of those issues, one of them that's interesting is that you know the the, the Trump children uh, who were you know direct beneficiaries of straight up nepotism. I mean, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were two of the most powerful people in the world uh, during the Trump era, which is a horrifying thought, but it's true. Um, the difference is that you know when you think about people looking at Hunter Biden, Democrats are not in a cult of personality around Joe Biden. If Hunter Biden committed crimes, he should be prosecuted. I mean, mm. no one has any qualms saying that. The problem is, I think, that they're going to use this as a cudgel to try to cover up crimes or what about crimes that are much more central to American democracy because they were committed by people actually in power, right? Hunter Biden has no formal political power in the United States and should not have any influence in the U.S. government and, as far as we can tell, does not. So, you know, I think the other aspect about the FBI's politicization and law enforcement's politicization, what they're going to claim is that because the FBI investigated crimes that Trump committed, that therefore it's a political tool. I mean, one of the things that I've lamented is actually, I think that if any politicization has happened, it's that Joe Biden has been too cautious and too conservative in launching investigations that lead to prosecutions when we have clear publicly available evidence that crimes have been committed. I mean, you, you have things like Donald Trump on tape recorded instructing an election official in Georgia to find him enough votes to switch the election so that he would win it. If that's not a crime and that's not something that can be prosecuted, then our whole democracy is beholden to this idea that the president can literally order people to rig elections. And so, you know, my my concern is that actually the Democrats are being too tepid about this and sort of, and too timid rather, uh, about this, where they're so scared of the appearance of politicization and law enforcement that they're letting crimes go unpunished even when they set really important precedents for the functioning of American democracy such that the president can get away with all sorts of stuff uh, as long as they are named Donald Trump. I'm old enough to have seen some of this kind of thing before. You know, the, the Newt Gingrich playbook, you, you know, defund the government, shut it down, launch meaningless investigations, and then turn around and complain that government doesn't work and politics is too partisan. Um, but is, is it different this time around? It's not that, you know, it's, it seems to be driven not so much by Gingrich's form of extreme political cynicism and more by a kind of psychological quasi-religious fervor. Yeah, I completely agree with this. So, you know, what's interesting, there's there's an essay from the 1960s about the political right by Richard Hofstetter, which is called, you know, the paranoid style in American politics about how the right wing from sort of McCarthyism in the 1950s and so on through JFK's assassination and the rise of Barry Goldwater, an extreme political candidate in the 1960s, uh, who was the Republican nominee, how that has transformed the party. And there's been this longstanding conspiracism within the political right. 
What's different this time around is that Newt Gingrich exploited those delusions and also exploited some of the more radical elements within his base, but wasn't a true believer, right? And the difference this time is they actually believe them, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, before she was in the public spotlight, talked about how wildfires in California had been started by Jewish space lasers. I mean, a completely crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Not to mention the idea that, you know, she believed in QAnon and that some of these other people, the the hundred plus members of the House who voted to decertify or not to certify Biden's election victory, I mean, a lot of them are true believers. They actually think that the election was rigged. So that's so much more dangerous, right? This is, this is not just a set of people who are exploiting deranged political viewpoints for their partisan gain like you might have had in the past. This is people who are motivated by true belief in lunacy. And, you know, this is the caucus that controls one of the most powerful legislative bodies in the world. So... You know, there's a good news story, which is that the Democrats control the Senate and they control the presidency, so they can block some of the more egregious stuff. But one of the areas where this is most dangerous is that there are things like the debt ceiling, which is basically it's an arcane uh, rule in U.S. politics where you have to formally vote to allow a certain amount of public debt to be accrued. And if you don't do that, the U.S. defaults on its debt and the global economy crashes. And the Republicans who are holding... Uh, the House hostage right now, are demanding that the debt ceiling not be increased. So, you know, there's going to be a showdown at some point in which if enough of the crazies in the Republican Party vote for this, you could actually have a self-inflicted global recession that would make Liz Truss look like a blip. So, you know, I, I, I worry profoundly about the deranged nature of some of these people who are not elected uh, to solve problems, but are, are, are simply motivated by, you know, partisan delusions that are not polarized based on left versus right, but are actually outside of reality. And that's, you know, it's a really scary thing to talk about, but it's true. I mean, this is something where we have a lot of people who I do not think are grounded in reality, who are some of the most powerful people in the world, and they're now in charge of at least a significant chunk of the the party that controls the House of Representatives. So just to wrap it up then, uh, we have a further two years of uh, Joe Biden's presidency the Democrats are in, as you say, a slightly more auspicious position than perhaps they thought they would be after the midterms, but they still have a log-jammed house. How can they play it over the next couple of years, not just to ensure that Biden doesn't become a one-term president, but to somehow roll back on this, this wave of crazy that seems to have um, kind of installed itself in a vaguely immovable position? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think the odds of any serious domestic legislation that's of the sort of major reform variety getting passed is pretty low for the next two years. I mean, the U.S. system is built to a large degree for gridlock, and that's become much worse in, in recent years because it's often a you know the political kiss of death to work with the other party in Congress. But I think there's a few things that can be done. One is that Biden should focus a lot on uh, making his legacy in foreign policy before the 2024 election. The the stuff around the war in Ukraine, that can get done because you will actually get Republicans voting for aid and, and, and there's a big hawkish wing within the Republican Party that can help. So that's part of it. The other thing that I think they need to do is I think they need to make flagship policies that are very visible and force the Republicans to vote them down. There's a lot of stuff that Democrats are pushing for that is universally popular. Uh, things like lack of 
paid family leave, the costs of education, etc. So, you know, try to take some big, very simple ideas and force the Republicans to vote against them. And also expose the Republicans' attempts to try to defund the sort of social welfare state in terms of Social Security and, and Medicare and Medicaid, uh, two programs of, of health provision in the U.S. And then the final thing that I think they need to do is they need to stop avoiding the obvious and start defining the Republicans as the crazy party. And I say this, you know, in, in a sort of sense as a political messenger. In my, in my pre-academic life, I worked on political campaigns. And I think there's just this tendency in left-wing politics to avoid that sort of crude labeling that right-wing politicians are so effective at. And it's just sitting there waiting for Democrats to talk about it, right? These are some actual lunatics who are in charge and some really, really dangerous ideas where they're talking about the craziest stuff. And Democrats shy away from that fight by talking, I think, too much about statistics and policy. And they need to get this really clear idea that this is a party of people who are irresponsible and deranged. And they have handed over the keys to Congress to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Goetz, and you should not want those people anywhere near power. Because overwhelmingly, that's that's a message that 70, 80 percent of Americans agree with once you talk about the people who are really on the fringes of reality, but are unfortunately in the mainstream of the Republican Party. So this will be a messaging battle. It's a bit depressing to say, you know, the next two years, all we can really hope for is some foreign policy victories, um, defining the political opposition and so on. But the nature of U.S. politics is that most domestic proposals that require any level of spending are pretty much dead in the water, um, with the exception of some really non-controversial things. I mean, you know, maybe they'll get a little bit more funding for infrastructure or something like that. But most of the domestic agenda for Biden is pretty much dead in the water because uh, the House has switched sides. Well, you know, foreign policy gains are good for those of us who live in the rest of the world, I suppose. So something to cheer about in a small way. Well, I mean, absolutely. And you think about after the Trump era, right? I mean, Trump did immense damage to America's standing in the world. And in a way, you know, Vladimir Putin has handed this sort of messaging point to the West to consolidate, to become this sort of group known as democracies that stick together. And if that's Biden's legacy on the foreign stage is to repair the international order and to create a much more robust liberal democratic alliance within NATO and beyond, that would not be a bad legacy to leave. And it's where the stakes of 2024 are so enormous, because if Trump were to get back in, I think on day one, he would probably withdraw from NATO. And it would be a huge shift in geopolitics in, in a way that would have catastrophic impacts on global political order and the risk of more conflicts in the years to come. So even though Biden has been sort of defanged on the domestic front, he will be still a very, very influential player in geopolitics. And that's something that I expect he will make more central to his uh, presidency in the in the months and years to come. Brian Class, thanks for joining me. It's been fascinating as always. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, you can, of course, be part of uh, our own particular popular insurrection by supporting The Bunker on Patreon. You'll get early episodes on all aspects of politics at home and abroad, plus merchandise and lots more. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how you can support our valuable work. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison, produced by Jack Gerbertson, Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, the audio production came from me, Robin Lieber. Theme tune is by Jade Bailey, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>